Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Bible time. Let's get it. I like the green the best. Um, as you all know, uh, we have been running through this year through, um, through a Bible series. It'll be 15 weeks of Bible. Um, on these Bible weeks, we're focusing on a book, trying to make you competent in that particular book and trying to help you connect how that book fits the whole macro arc of Scripture. So if you were here in January, uh, you will remember. How do you even do this, man? Okay, you will remember. You will not remember how the vibe board works, apparently, if you're Tyler. But you will remember we covered uh, three books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. And honestly, we covered some, some pretty foundational themes in terms of the macro arc of Scripture. We talked about creation. That's foundational. We talked about sin. That's foundational. We talked about the fall and uh, human nature. That's foundational. We talked about God's people and how he made a covenant with Abraham of blessing. Uh, and that is foundational. We talked about the exodus and redemption. We talked about the giving of God's law. And all of these themes are absolutely foundational uh, for scripture, right? We basically went from the Garden of Eden to the promised land. And uh, I think that sort of set the groundwork for where we wanna go. Now, for the next few weeks, we're gonna push the narrative forward though by looking um, at first today, first and second Samuel and how the monarchy is established. Next week, we'll do the Psalms. The following week, we'll do Isaiah. I would just remind you that as we work our way through this series, this is a same page series, same page series. So that means right now across the street, as we are in here studying first and second Samuel, your youths, your kiddos over there are uh, also studying first and second Samuel. The elementary is gonna be studying, um, I think preschool too, they're gonna be studying David all three weeks of this uh, series. And they're already after it, right? Um, we have developed a podcast that helps you get on the same page, especially if you got like an elementary or middle school kid. If you haven't checked this out yet, Go do it. Uh, we did a season one on Genesis during the first series and uh, we had hundreds of families following with us. So we launched a David series uh, during this series. There will be nine episodes that are released and spoiler alert, there's a rap battle between David and Goliath. So you're gonna wanna see it or hear it, right? Um, also, if you're into more sophisticated mediums of information, you can get out to necchurch.org slash resources. And uh, Jonathan Thomas, one of our staff, has put together just some amazing resources for you on every single book that we've gone through, including today, First and Second Samuel. Now, with that being said, let's set the groundwork for Samuel. Set the stage here. Uh, you should know that First and Second Samuel was originally one book, not two. We split it up. And I think a far better title for First and Second Samuel uh, is not First and Second Samuel at all. It's First and Second David because David is actually the main character of this book. Now, Samuel's important. Samuel's important. He's a judge, uh, the last judge. He's a prophet. He's a kingmaker. God literally asks Samuel to anoint the first king, Saul, and then go anoint David. So he's significant, but calling these books first and second Samuel would be like calling the Harry Potter series first and second Dumbledore. I'm just saying, like Dumbledore's important, right? He's like the wise old guy and he mentors Harry and we all know he's significant, but he ain't a dude. Harry's a dude, right? 
He's a main character, but a supporting main character. In the same way, I would suggest this to you uh, about David. David is on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. You got like Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, in my humble opinion, right? But David's up there with the best. Now, uh, second key thing here, okay? Uh, First and second Samuel are what we might call, or what scholars would call, the literary type of historical uh, narrative. Historical narrative. But I think uh, that's a misleading title, just slightly misleading, because um, while they, the scholars call it historical narrative, history is not the priority of First and Second Samuel. Theology is. Theology is. Now that's not to say that First and Second Samuel are ahistorical. They're accurate. Okay. They're just not objective. First and Second Samuel has a very specific theological opinion that it wants to give to you. Um, Okay, so a good modern day comparison would be this, and it's bad for some reasons, but it's really good for others. Historical narrative in the Bible is like the mainstream news today. It really is. When When you watch like Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever, it very, very quickly, it becomes apparent to you that they have an agenda. They're biased. They have a way of seeing the world and they wanna tell you all about it. And they'll include certain stories They'll pretend like other stories don't exist. They'll villainize certain characters and lionize other characters, right? All to make sure that you see the world the way they do. It's spiritual formation, if you will. And that's what First and Second Samuel and historical narratives of scripture is in. They're in the business of forming you. They're in the business of giving you a specific opinion about God's relationship with his people. And they use the medium of history to teach this theology, right? Now, the main difference though, between the news and the Bible is that the Bible is the inspired word of God and Tucker Carlson isn't, okay? Or, or Rachel Maddow, what, what's your, Anderson Cooper, both sides, Tyler, there's your both sides. Okay, now, that said, perhaps a better title would be theological narrative, theological narrative, because that's the A priority. It's a grandpa story, as we talked about in the first, uh, first run here. It's grandpa sitting in his rocker, recalling the stories of the good old days so that you'll know who you are and what your family's about and where you've come from. So I would suggest to you that the question you should be asking here is this. When you read historical narrative, you should say, what themes about God and his people does this story keep hitting on? What's the theological undercurrent? because that's what the text is about. Now, with that being said, for First and Second Samuel, if I were to sum up for you the dominant theme here, I could do it in one word, kingship, kingship. That's the theme of this book. First and Second Samuel is about politics. Uh, this, is, uh, this book is basically about, it's about how a people got so afraid that they placed, they placed their trust in a political system and in a political savior. Now, could you ever imagine a nation doing that? Yeah, me too. So maybe we could learn a little bit about it, right? What we see here is that the people of Israel look to a political system, the monarchy, and political leaders like Saul, David, Solomon, and sons to be their saviors. And they find out that politicians make bad saviors and political systems are as sinful or as good as the people who run them. But make no mistake here, this book is about politics and how politics are supposed to work. Politics, 
kingship. That's the theological undercurrent under everything you read. So I think these are the sort of questions you should be asking the text because these are the questions the text is answering. Like, is kingship, is that what God wants? And the answer is sorta, as we'll see. What makes a bad king? And the answer is Saul, as we'll see. What makes a good king? Well, the answer is David, right? And his wonderful heart, as we'll see. And what's God gonna do about all this? Well, and the answer to that is Jesus, as we'll see. Now, I know we are not supposed to talk about politics in church, okay? Or at least that's what people have been telling me for the last few years. Those people are gone anyway. So first and second Samuel's political. <laughs> it's political. We gotta go there. And I guess, I guess we either better stop reading the Bible or we just gotta get over our political idols, right? We gotta get over our political idols and just embrace the fact that scripture, scripture talks about this almost nonstop. Almost nonstop. Now, that brings us to first question here. Question number one. Is this what God wants? Is this what God wants? Kingship, is that what he wants? And the answer to that question is, well, sure, I guess, sort of, yeah. If, if the king honors God. It's as simple as that. Now, here's the biblical reality, y'all. The biblical reality is that God does ordain government as good, but he does not ordain any specific governmental system as best. Not all governmental systems are created equal, by the way. Some reflect the values of God better than others. But scripture does not ordain any specific political system as good, but it does ordain government as good. We see this in Genesis chapter one. There are a few key institutions of humanity laid out in Genesis one. You see family laid out, marriage laid out. You also see government laid out. When God creates humans, says God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, govern it. So in a way, government is an original job description for human beings. The key though, is that we are supposed to lead to govern as image bearers. Just like God brought order in the midst of chaos and beauty in the midst of chaos in Genesis one, we too are now supposed to go and do the same in the world around us. We're supposed to govern like God would have us. And as we watch God's people develop from Genesis one forward, I would suggest to you this is the key to their politics. Governments rise and fall. Tribes rise and fall. Kings rise and fall based on how well they honor the authority and will of God. Now understand, um, the monarchy wasn't a governmental system that was, that was even around for the first thousand years of Israelite history. Okay, uh, the monarchy starts right here with the reign of Saul. Okay, but the people of God start right here with the covenant that God makes with Abraham. So you got about a thousand year period where they're running a different governmental system playbook, if you will. Uh, for example, uh, with Abraham, what was the governmental system then? Like a theocracy, I guess. I don't know. God basically comes and he calls a pagan Abraham and makes a covenant with him and says, I'm gonna bless the nations through you and through your family, Abraham. 
And at that point, what a time to be alive. God communicates to his people through like dreams and visions and just talking to them. And there's this wrestling match between him and Jacob and a whole, the whole Melchizedek thing. That's weird, right? But at this point, God's people are basically governed like an ancient family. That's the governance system. Now, as you move forward through the patriarchs in Genesis, you then get to Moses. Moses leads the slaves out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then all of a sudden we get to see some government structure start to get introduced into the equation, right? It's still a theocracy of sorts, but God uh, hires a CEO, Moses. He starts hiring some VPs. You get Aaron, who's like the, the head priest. You get Miriam, who's like a head prophet. Aaron is Moses' brother. Miriam is Moses' sister. So somebody needs to get HR involved here because Moses needs some nepotism training, right? So get, get, get him some PD in that, right? But like, like that's, how, that's how it gets developed. There's this amazing moment where the people get so big that Moses is getting overwhelmed by the burden of leading and his father-in-law comes and he actually tells Moses, you need to make a governance structure, man. You need to put leaders over thousands, hundreds, and tens. And we see the structure fill itself out even more. We also have the law at this time that God gives to Moses and understand Moses as the leader doesn't originate the law. He doesn't create the law, rather he delivers it and enforces it. And that's a key distinction. But that's what we have in the time of Moses. After Moses, we get Joshua. And Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land and we move into the era of the judges. Now during the era of the judges, all the Israelite tribes basically got their parcel of land in the promised land. And Israel functioned as a federation of tribes. And the judges were these people that would rise up during key moments and lead. Sometimes they would lead as president, sometimes as prophet, sometimes as priest, sometimes as Rambo, right? But like whatever the people needed at any given time, you've got people like Gideon, um, Samson, Deborah, and Samuel, who are some of the more famous judges uh, during that time period. Now, the reason why they finally transition out of uh, out of the, the time of the judges, if you will, like there's 1050, right? And into a monarchy is because, well, read judges. <laughs> Something wasn't working. Judges is an absolute toilet bowl of a story and it just gets worse and worse as it gets flushed, right? So by the time we get to the beginning of 1 Samuel, the people come to Samuel and they're like, we want a king like the rest of the nations. It, honestly, it's a plea for help because things are an absolute mess in Israel. So that brings us to the question. They want a king. How does God feel about that? Well, the answer that, that the, like, the Old Testament for Samuel included gives us is, uh, first, he wasn't surprised by it. He wasn't surprised. In fact, God predicted it 400 years earlier in Deuteronomy 17. Again, this is the law that Moses delivered. And I want you to notice here what God says. First Samuel 8 basically quotes this. Okay, so if you wanna know what's underneath First Samuel 8 when they ask for a king, it's this passage right here. Through Moses, God says, hey, you're about to enter the land. Um, the Lord your God's giving you, that's the promised land. And when you take it over and settle there, you may think to yourself, we should select a king to rule over us like all the other nations around us. That's exactly what they say in 1 Samuel 8, right? If this happens, be sure to select as king. Well, I'll just put like a colon there because for the rest of this passage, God tells them exactly what he wants the monarch to look like if they go there. 
Now, I'm not gonna read the passage for you, but I'll summarize it for you. God gives three rules for the monarch. First, he says, I wanna see this king be someone of complete and total trust in God. I don't want him to trust in armies, military power. I don't want him to trust in alliances like of the political nature. I want him to trust in God first and God only. Second, I do not want them to be greedy or enrich themselves on the plunder or the power that comes with being a king. And third, I want them to obey God's word. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 says, you better carry around with you a little Bible king. So it says, fascinating stuff. So to answer our question, is a king what God's, God wants? The answer is sure, I guess, as long as the king acts like this, which leads us to question number two. Okay, well then what makes a bad king? And enter stage right, Saul. And Saul, he doesn't act like this. All right, at least not, not very long. To be clear, Saul was God's choice. He was. Samuel anointed him. And he had a pretty good start. There were two things that qualified him according to 1 Samuel 9. Uh, the first one is a bit superficial. He was handsome and tall. Right? Let's choose the handsome, tall guy as our leader. If that's what you're going to, you're in a bad idea, okay? I'm not saying handsome, tall guys can't be leaders. I'm just saying let's be a little bit more nuanced than that, right? Now, Second one, second one though, this one's even more important, right? One of the keys to the fact that the reason why Saul gets chosen is because he's actually humble too. He's handsome and humble at first. When uh, Samuel tries to anoint Saul, this is how Saul responds to him. He says, I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin. It's like the smallest tribe. My family's the least important of all those families. Why are you talking like this to me? Basically what Saul is saying here is, uh, I'm not good enough to be king. That should be somebody smart, somebody strong, somebody brave, somebody with pedigree and power. If you name me king, I'm gonna need a lot of help from God. And ding, 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 ding. That's exactly what God wants to hear from his king. So you get to be king. Right. Now, because of Saul's humility initially, God blesses him. Saul experiences some success. He defeats Israel's enemies. Uh, he worships Yahweh, not idols. David's assessment on his reign is that he brought lots of economic prosperity to the land. Those are good things. But unfortunately, it did not last long. Because see, after Saul puts some winds under his belt, he gets cocky. And he starts breaking God's rules. And the text highlights two key specific uh, mistakes, failures that Saul has that caused him to lose his kingship. The first one is in 1 Samuel 13. Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, the Israelites just had this thing with the Philistines, right? They're just, uh, the Philistines were the fly in the eye of the Israelites, at least until the time of David when he squashes them out, right? Uh, so in 1 Samuel 13, we see Saul is going to battle again with the Philistines. And Saul is rolling heavy. Like he's feeling pretty good about himself. They've got 3,000 special troops and he's rolling with uh, 2,000 of them into this battle. They're feeling good. Until of course they get to the battle and they realize that the, whew, the Philistines don't play. They got 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. This is their perspective looking at the army, right? Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, um, the Israelites weren't blind they could count. So as they start to look out there, they begin to realize that the odds are not in their favor. And Saul's army begins to dwindle. 
I don't know how it dwindled, but I just kind of see it like 2000 goes to 1900, goes to 1800, goes to 1700, right? And Saul's starting to get nervous. He's like, we better go to battle soon before we lose all of our guys. He's beginning to place his trust in armies, right? Now here's the only problem. Saul could go to battle, but God had asked Saul to do one specific thing. He said, I want you to wait. Before you go into battle, I want you to wait for Samuel to get there. Let him make a sacrifice to me. Then when Samuel makes that sacrifice, go to battle. I got you back. So Saul's like, fine, I'll wait. But one day turns to two days and two days turns to five days and six days and seven days. And finally, Saul's like, I cannot wait anymore. Bring me the animal, we're going to battle. We're losing too many men. And so he kills the sacrifice without waiting for Samuel. And the second he kills the sacrifice, guess who rolls up? Samuel. And Samuel's like, okay, and he just hammers Saul for it. Now, real quick, let's go back to the rules for being a monarch. All right, what has Saul just violated? Well, at least two of them. He has not obeyed God's word because God gave him a specific command and he was disobedient. And he is not trusting in God. Rather, he allowed the anxiety of his people and his dwindling armies to nudge him towards disobedience. Now that's strike one. And apparently for Saul, two strikes and you're out. Because after failure number two, he loses the crown. You find this one in 1 Samuel 15. Um, in this story, basically God tells Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. For whatever reason, they are coming under God's judgment. And so he says, don't take plunder, don't take prisoners, uh, take, it, take them out. But Saul, again, Saul does not listen. In fact, if you read the passage here, he captures uh, Agag, who is the king. No, no prisoners, he captures Agag. And then check this out. He takes the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the calves, the lambs, everything for himself. Oh, Saul, Saul, Saul. So back to our rules. What do we see here in Saul? Well, he certainly did not obey God's word. God gave him a clear command. Didn't do very good at it. He enriched himself on plunder that was not his to take. And he did not trust in God. Rather this time, he forms a political alliance by keeping the king of the Amalekites alive. And two strikes and you're out in this game, right? So to summarize, Saul was disobedient because he tried to rule his way rather than God's way. Two things happen in response to this. Saul loses his mind and he loses his crown. Like literally the Bible says that after he stopped obeying God, David was anointed and he loses God's spirit. It's fascinating to me how 1 Samuel 16, 13 and 14 are just patched right together, right? One describes the anointing of David, the other describes really the fall of Saul, if you will. Look at how these read. Verse 13, it says, and the spirit of the Lord came mightily on David from that day forward, the second after he's anointed, right? But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord began to torment him. A tormenting spirit. Now, yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, what's a tormenting spirit? Well, a tormenting spirit is uh, a spirit that talks about uh, doing CrossFit all the time and their macros when you're just trying to eat some queso, man, and enjoy it. That's a tormenting spirit. No, 
Some of you got some in tormenting spirit. I'm just kidding. A tormenting spirit, scholars go two ways on this. One, they think it's, uh, Saul was struggling with extreme anxiety here. Or two, they think there was actual spiritual affliction. I think it's the latter, by the way, uh, rather than the former. Uh, either way though, Saul devolves into suicidal madness. Now that brings us to our third question. And that is, uh, what makes a good king? And uh, enter stage right, David. You think Saul was an unlikely candidate? David was more unlikely. But 1 Samuel 16, verse one, it said, the Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned enough for Saul. He's been rejected as king. Go fill your flask with olive oil and head to Bethlehem. Hmm, you know, why, why Bethlehem? Well, that's where David lives and that's where Jesus is born. But anyway, so find a man. He says, find there a man there named Jesse. Who's Jesse? That's David's dad, right? Um, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Now, when Samuel gets there, it says uh, Samuel arrived and he took one look at Eliab and he's like, well, there he is. That's the king, right? Who's Eliab? It was David's oldest son, okay? And apparently he had two things going for him. Come on, Israel, learn your lesson here, right? No, it's like he looked, he was, he was handsome and tall, right? It's a handsome and tall guy, king, king, right? That's what they did. So he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed one. But the Lord said to Samuel, okay, and don't miss this because this is how God judges you as well. He says, don't judge by his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, everybody together, at the heart, beautiful. And that's what made David a great king, his heart, his heart. This is the storyline for the rest of 1 Samuel and the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, David's heart for God. That's his nickname, by the way, the kid with heart, the man after God's own heart. Now, fun fact real quick, after David is anointed here, do you know how long he has to wait to be recognized as king? How long the wait is? Between the anointing and the recognition of it? David is anointed. Saul and Jonathan die. About 15 years. About 15 years he has to wait. So while David is waiting and Saul is spinning out of control, what we see in the rest of 1 Samuel is we see what God meant when he said David has heart. Almost every story emphasizes it going forward. And just to kind of recap for you, I, let, let me give you three, I think three key stories here that show you his heart. The first one is a popular one, David and Goliath. Uh, okay, you guys know this story? Yeah, a lot of people have heard this story, before, even if you're not a Christian. So um, uh, Saul is king still, but he's spinning out. And uh, apparently Israel has a giant problem. This giant named Goliath. And Saul is afraid of him. And everyone else is afraid of him. Well, everyone else except for the shepherd boy teenager who rolls up on the front lines that day with some food for his brothers. He hears Goliath for the 40th day in a row talking smack to the Israelite army and he don't like it. He talks a little smack back. He says, hey, who is this pagan Philistine? Everybody say pagan Philistine. Yeah, feels good to say, right? Like. When you're, when you're playing pickup basketball, that's the smack talk. That's your next year. Call him a pagan Philistine. Okay, who is this pagan Philistine anyways that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Then immediately, David goes to Saul. He talks Saul into let him go fight him. 
right? Uh, and uh, he rolls out there with a, a sling and a stone. And when he gets out there, he talks more smack. Smack talk is biblical, apparently. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, okay? But I come to you with a bigger sword and tanks and God sent a black hawk from the future. No, it's not what he says. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Look at his weapon of choice, the power of the Lord. This is the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And today, David will conquer you. He says, no, he says, today the Lord will conquer you, giant. Mm. Now, he was still a kid, but that is the irrational trust. The absolute, complete, just defies the odds trust that God wants in all of us. And often we can learn that sort of bold faith from young people, can't we? Because a sling and a stone later, the giant lay dead on the ground. And you know what Saul does in this situation? What any politician would do. He takes credit for it. He's like, I hired him, right? And then he, he uh, promotes David in that moment to commander of the armies, this teenage kid. But literally, literally, uh, uh, it's a smart decision at this point because he's God's anointed. And so because of that, God blesses uh, the Israelites' battles going forward until an unexpected turn of events happen. 1 Samuel 18, 6. It says, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, uh, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands. And Saul's like, that's right. Saul. But David has killed tens thousands. To which Saul's like, well, wait, hold up. What? All right. Saul was not happy about this. Saul was not happy about the affections of his people sliding away from him. In fact, the next passage says that this made Saul very angry. And he says, what's this? They credit David with tens thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. Oh, a accidental prophetic moment. And so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And there's the difference, by the way. There's the difference between Saul's heart and David's heart. Can I get devotional for you? Uh, for a second. This story is not an allegory about slaying your giants in life. It's a story about absolute irrational trust. It basically asks you, how much do you trust in God? Are you willing to be obedient and honor his way and honor his word, even if everyone else is afraid to, even if the odds are stacked against you, when the pressure is on to the point of death, will you be like David? Because you see, in that moment, whatever is in you, it will spill out of you. If God's in your heart, godliness will spill out. If love is in your heart, then love will spill out. If trust is in your heart, then trust will spill out. Or if self-protection and jealousy is in your heart, then that will spill out as well. And that's what spills out of David's. That's what spills out of Saul's. And Saul goes from promoting David to trying to kill him. Which leads to our second great story of David's heart. David goes on the run. And he just patiently runs, hides, and waits for God's anointing to come to fruition. First Samuel 18, nine says, you just read it. Uh, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And uh, based on the rest of first Samuel, talk about the understatement of the century. What this verse should have said is that from this time on, Saul tried to spear that fool, right? because he throws at least three spears at him, sends multiple gangs of assassins after him, chases him with his armies, 
for, the, for the, basically the next decade or so, David's on the run. He can't go home. He can't hang out with his best friend, Jonathan, who's Saul's son, right? He, he's living in the wilderness, living in caves. This is not a fun situation for him, but he patiently waits and trusts. Did you know that in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, David gets two opportunities to actually take Saul out and take the crown through aggression and coercion. Did you know this? Oh, these are fantastic stories. In 1 Samuel 26, Saul's asleep and they get a chance to sneak into the army camp and he could have just killed them right there and ended it all together. The better one though is 1 Samuel 24. When Saul is, anybody know this one? Going number two. It's in the Bible, y'all. You should read your Bibles. In 1 Samuel 24, Okay, so Saul and his army is chasing, you didn't know this is in the Bible. So, okay, so Saul is chasing David and David and his men are hiding in a cave, right? And Saul and his men can't find him. And Saul's like, all right, let's bring the war parade for a stop for a second because the king's gotta go, right? And so the king goes into a cave to use the bathroom, number two, right? And while he's in there, it's the same cave David and his armies are in. So David and his armies are like, David, David, Saul. Get him. Like, let's take him out. He's a bad dude. <laughs> so, and David's like, no, like, I, I, this is not God's will. This is not God's way. He's God's anointed one and God will remove him from the throne on God's timing. This is the sort of trust this guy has. Now, David does do this interesting thing though. He goes, and I'm not sure how he does this, but he goes and while Saul's using the bathroom, he cuts off a little hem of his robe. I don't know, like Saul must've hung it up or something because you don't wanna be crawling around on the ground at this point, right? So like he goes, like cuts off a little piece of his hem and Saul leaves the thing. He goes down uh, the mountain and David comes out. And he's like, Saul, see the little hit. And David feels bad about cutting the hem off even, right? Later, but he's like, Saul, I got this hem here, okay? You see, I could have killed you, but I didn't because I'm a nice guy. Leave me alone, like quit chasing me. And Saul legitimately feels guilty. And again, he has this accidental prophetic moment. He goes, you know, you deserve to be king, not me. Oh, was he right? Now, Saul does eventually die, okay? Fortunately for Saul, this is probably why Saul was kind of nice to him because that's not, that's not the way you wanna go out. Saul, did you go out in battle? No, I went out in the bathroom, right? You know, so, but, but he it does, thanks to David, he goes out in battle at the end of 1 Samuel. And when we get to 2 Samuel, Okay, this is when David takes over and, and he becomes king. And as king, uh, David's momentum feel, uh, builds incredibly fast. Uh, he unites the north and the south in what, basically about seven and a half years or so, I think. Um, he defeats the Jebusites, drives them out of Jerusalem and makes Jerusalem uh, his uh, capital city. Um, 2 Samuel 5, 6, he doesn't make it just the uh, actual political capital, capital. He also makes it the spiritual capital. And um, we spelt capital in two ways. So somebody's just gonna have to tell me the right way after service. And uh, then he defeats, the, he defeats his enemies like the Philistines, okay? And, uh, and, and overall, David actually expands the kingdom of Israel over 60,000 square miles. Uh, the yellow part here, I'll kind of outline for you, was basically Saul's kingdom. And the green part here, that I'm outlining now was David's kingdom. So go David, it's your birthday, right? He's working it, 60,000, okay. So Kentucky is 40,000 square miles, according to Google. So that's like one and a half Kentuckys that he just added to Israel. So there you go, that's not, that's not bad work. Now, uh, despite all of David's successes though, the man after God's heart, believe it or not, was a sinner like you and me. And this is where the third key scene 
where we get to see David's heart comes into play. Enter stage left Bathsheba. This one you've probably heard because this is uh, probably the second most popular sin outside of the Garden of Eden in the Bible. One day David is on a roof. He sees a beautiful married woman, married woman bathing. He summons her, he sleeps with her, finds out she's pregnant, and then he orchestrates an elaborate cover-up that eventually ends with her husband Uriah getting stationed on the front lines of the battlefield and killed. The man after God's heart, adultery, dishonesty, murder. The Bible does not hide its hero's humanity, does it? And it's awful, but don't you dare roll your eyes at David. You better just thank your lucky stars that the Bible was written then and not now with all of our failures and flaws for history to see, amen? Now, David suffers severe consequences for this. There's this scene where Nathan comes and he calls David out on behalf of God. David don't think anybody knows, but God knows, right? So God tells Nathan, I want you to go talk to David for me. So Nathan rolls in there, this is what happens. It says, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to have a little chat with David. He says, uh, David, let me tell you a story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man owned a lot of sheep, a lot of cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. And don't say, ooh, because it's how you treat your dogs. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby, okay? One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he went and got the poor man's little pet lamb and killed it. And the rich man prepared it for his guest. Ooh, David was furious about that because David has a good heart. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must pay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then Nathan said this to David. He said, you're the man, you. And from this time on, your family, don't miss this, will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking your wise wife to be your own. There's the foreshadowing for the rest of 2 Samuel. Your family will live by the sword And for the rest of 2 Samuel, David's family is a mess. There is death, there is sexual assault, there's murder, there's civil war. Now, yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, that's bad. What makes David any better than Saul? Why doesn't he lose the crown? Well, I'm not totally sure, but the only thing I can think of that David had, which Saul didn't, is this, genuine repentance. Psalm 51, many scholars believe was written in response to the Bathsheba sin. Listen to David's repentant heart. Oh, are you struggling with a sin today? Do you have guilt on your conscience? Is it stealing your joy, sucking the life out of you? Do you wonder if God could ever forgive you Make David's prayer your prayer. He says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. 
Do not banish me from your presence. No, don't do what you did to Saul. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And I tell you what, praise God that there is no sin too big for him to forgive when there's genuine repentance. Because David goes on later in another Psalm to say, he forgave me. Psalm 103, he says, he has removed our sins as far as from the east to the west. What a beautiful image. So quick recap here, quick recap. What makes a good king or a good heart, if you will? According to David's story, well, few things. There is that absolute irrational trust in God that we see. There's this sort of patient faithfulness. I think it was Eugene Peterson who coined the phrase, a long obedience in the same direction that we see. And then there is genuine repentance, which is really the only, they both sin, right? What's the difference between Saul and David? It seems to be not their sin, but rather their willingness to repent. Now, that is the reason, y'all. That is the reason I believe God chooses to continue the covenant he made with Abraham through David. Because he had a good heart. If you remember Genesis 1 through 11, we covered this. It was just a mess. God creates a good earth, we curse it with sin. The managerial relationship that God set up with his image bearers is not working out. We see that they are rebellious, murderous, scandalous, arrogant, envious. And so at the end of Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, I mean, we've got Cain and Abel, Noah, it's it's just tower, it's just bad, right? At the end of uh, chapter 11, we're left asking ourselves the question, what is God gonna do? Which is our final question today. What's God going to do? Will he fire us? Will he give up on the relationship? Will he wipe the slate clean and just start over like he did with the flood? What will he do? To which Genesis 12 answers with grace and blessing. Focus on the last line here because this sums it up for you. God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise. He says, I'm gonna use you, Abraham, to bless all the families on earth. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, how in the world is God gonna bless the whole world through one man and one family? Well, that is what we talk about every week here. See, you need to understand this John 3, 16 rescue plan that you hear churches like us chirping about all the time. It is here, right here, where that plan begins to take shape. The Old Testament uh, isn't just a bunch of random verses that sort of hint at Jesus sometimes. All 39 books together are an interwoven narrative that flow towards Jesus from beginning to end. Every patriarch, every hero, every king, every prophet, every leader, and every book. And David is key. David is on the Mount Rushmore, if you will. There are four key stages to God's covenant. There's Abraham's uh, covenant where God establishes it. There's Moses' stage where the nation is established and the law is given. And then there's David's stage here, stage three. We'll talk about stage four in a couple weeks. So there's David's stage here where God comes to David and he says, I'm gonna update this promise. Abraham's line is gonna run through your line. Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, David, uh, to David, God says, furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you are died and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, a great son of David, your own offspring, and I'll make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. It's a forever throne. Now, for what it's worth, this is what First and Second Kings is about. You got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, right? 
First and second Kings are basically just the Israelites judging all their politicians. Could you imagine a preacher standing on stage, by the way, and saying, let's just go through all of our presidents and all the candidates for the 2024 election. Let me tell you what I think about them, right? That's first and second Kings. It's in the Bible. They go through one king after the other, starting with Solomon and asking the question, is this the great son of David? Is this the great son of David? Is this the king that we've been looking for? To which the answer is, nope, 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 definitely nope, right? Most of them are bad. Even the good ones aren't that good. And yet, as we move through the monarchy, the prophets don't lose the pulse of the promise. You have prophets like Isaiah during the first exile, the exile of the north, prophesying things like out of the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's dad will grow a shoot, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Then you have prophets like Jeremiah during the second exile, the exile of the south coming and saying, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when I'll raise up a righteous branch. You remember? He's drawing off the Isaiah prophecy 175 uh, years earlier, and he's making it even clearer, right? It's gonna be from King David's line. Then uh, Ezekiel, as they are going into exile, uh, says this. He said, look at this beautiful prophetic oracle here. Uh, It's an oracle of restoration. Uh, God says, I'll rescue my flock. They'll no longer be abused. I will judge between one animal of the flock and another, and I will set over them one shepherd. You might call him a good shepherd. My servant... David. Now David's dead. Who's he talking about, right? None other than the great promised son of David. When they come back from exile, the prophet Zechariah does similar. He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Here's the man called, there it is, the branch, right? The branch. And he will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Now, I want you to see this with your own eyes because as the Old Testament comes to close, a few hundred years later, the New Testament begins. And the very first book of the New Testament is what? Matthew, okay? You know that, right? (laughs) We'll get to Matthew later this year, okay? And the very first chapter of Matthew is what? Chapter one, come on, right? And the first verse is what? Verse one, right? And in Matthew chapter one, verse one, Uh, It's like, we talked about this before, the alarm bell should be going off. Matthew says, I wanna introduce you to Jesus by telling you a little bit about his family tree. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the fireworks are going, right? David, Abraham, this is the one story starting with Genesis, running to Jesus. The same God who made a covenant with Abraham and David is now fulfilling it through this man, Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, just in case you aren't clear, let's finish the Bible with me making it clear for you. letters here, Jesus talking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. So just in case there's any doubts, I'm the great son of David. I am. Boom. Bible. Done. So don't undersell this point, y'all. The New Testament begins and ends with King Jesus as the son of David. Now let's have a devotional moment here before we take communion and go home. It's the same thing I said after Abraham's promise. We need reminding. God has a plan. He has a plan and you can count on it. God has been keeping this plan and keeping this promise on track for generations despite our best errors for generations. 
God will put his thumb on the scale. He'll miraculously intervene. He'll bend the macro arc of human history, motivated by his unconditional love for sinners. He will impregnate the barren mother, Hannah. He will anoint teenage shepherds. He'll slay giants, win wars, and work his will through failed kings, through sexual sin, through broken families. He will go with you into battle. Then he will go with you into hiding. Then he will go with you into the valley of the shadow of death. And then when those valleys start turning to mountaintops and those caves start turning to throne rooms, he'll guide you there too. And then when you fail him, on the front page of history when you fail him, even then his faithful love will forgive. He will work through the most unworkable people, forgive the most unforgivable sinners. Even when evil is at its best, God still 10 moves ahead. From Genesis to Jesus to Revelation, his covenant stood and it stands and it will stand in Christ. That's why the apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, yes, yes. So why, why then are we so obsessed with or so afraid of governmental leaders? Why? Why do we allow them to stir us or shame us or scheme us or scare us? As Christians, we have nothing to be afraid of in the grand scheme of eternity. We are not shaken by bad leaders. We're not swayed by doomsday predictions. We're not afraid of persecution or humiliation. We're not defeated by injustice. We're not fearful of political power and its ability to harm us because if scripture's true, we have a power in us more powerful than any governmental system, the Holy Spirit. And we have a king who is the king of kings before whom every knee will bow someday. And you can count on that because you can count on God. He's been faithful through the generations, but can he count on us? Can he count on us in this generation? You know, David shows us what it looks like to be a king or to be a follower, a leader after God's heart. Absolute irrational trust in God, patient faithfulness, genuine Repentance. David was about it. Are you about it? Because this is how God still brings his blessing into the world today. It was his plan from the beginning. It was his plan in the middle. It's his plan in the end. So will we honor Jesus's faithfulness with our own? I pray we will because the right side of history is his side. And there's generations upon generations to prove it. Will you take your communion out right now? And I just wanna ask you to meditate for just a moment on the faithfulness of Jesus and our matching faithfulness. And then we will partake of it together.